Welcome to the second ever Know and Do interview. I am really enjoying this branch of the overall Know and Do project that I have been doing for a few months now. The first part of this project is a Facebook page in which I post my near-daily learnings from my studies of that day. The next branch, that started a little bit later, is the daily devotional Know and Do podcast that I post about five days per week. I then had a thought that there are so many people in my life who have influenced me as they live the Know and Do principle in their lives that I wanted to have conversations with these people and ask them about their story about when belief became action, about when faith produced works, about when testimony became conversion, and about when no became do. As I put together a rough framework about how it could look, I then created a list of people who have influenced me in my life to be more of a doer of the word and not just a hearer. As I put this list together, I had a few names that were immediately impressed upon my mind. Corey Ellsworth was definitely one of those people. I had casually heard my parents talk of him over the years as they had performed in his play that will be discussed uh, in this interview called 1856, The Musical. They would then mention some information about his children and some of the tragic experiences that his family was enduring. As an outsider, I would nod and say things like, that's hard or how sad. But being that I didn't know him or his family, I was pretty much insensitive to things. This all began to change about seven years ago. My family and I moved into the same neighborhood as the Ellsworths, and I was given the calling, or assignment, in the local church congregation to be the leader of the 12- and 13-year-old boys, and also the scoutmaster. This introduced me in a very personal manner to the Ellsworth family, as Cade and Colby, Corey and Amy's youngest children, were suddenly under my stewardship and rolled their power wheelchairs directly into my heart and at times directly over my toes. My relationship with the family was still a little indirect, and mostly through those boys. My son, Josh, quickly became great friends with the boys and spent a lot of time at their house. So, over time, I would have more and more in-depth conversations with Corey and with Amy, his awesome wife. I learned a bit more about their history, their love of their family, and their love of the Lord. In short, Corey has become a confidant, a mentor, even a business partner, and the title that I bestow here most gratefully is my friend. My family has since moved about a thousand miles from the Ellsworths, but those ties will forever have some of the more profound influences in my life now and moving forward into eternity. Now, a few months ago, Corey asked me to read through and make some comments or suggestions and edits or corrections on a draft of a series of books that he was writing. It's called the Seeger Chronicles. This series of books is legitimately gripping, exciting, and very good. I don't just say that because I love the author and his family. I was literally absorbed by the storyline, so much so that I had to read the first book a second time through, because in my reading and my absorption into the storyline, I stopped looking for the spelling and punctuation and awkward sentences because of the story. I am so excited for this series to go live. I really, really can't recommend them highly enough. In this interview, we also touch a bit on two Broadway-style musicals that he has written. The first was mentioned briefly above, in 1856 The Musical, 
And the second one, entitled Crosses, A Musical of Hope, has also had a big impact on my life. It is top-notch music and singing, and the fantastic message of hope. When Corey agreed to be one of the first interviews I did with the No and Do Project, I was very grateful and very excited. I love this man and his family, and I think you will too. So please sit back and enjoy this real conversation that covers lessons, experiences, invitations, conversion, and knowing and doing. It will also include a conversation and information about how you can purchase his books, The Seeger Chronicles, or his soundtracks from 1856 The Musical and Crosses A Musical of Hope. I am positive that you will walk away enlightened and lifted. Okay. Hey, Corey. It's good to talk to you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Justin. It's good to hear your voice. Doing very well. Thanks. Yeah, it's good to talk to you again. Um, I really enjoy the times we get to sit down and discuss things. Let's let the listening audience get to know you a little bit better. Why don't you take a few minutes and tell us who you are, you know, what you do, a little bit about your family, maybe, uh, where you live, favorite hobby, and most important to the know and do thing is your favorite color. That's great. I'd be happy to do that. So I'm Corey Ellsworth, and born and raised in Mesa, Arizona, but I'll talk more about that in a moment. I have a sweet wife, Amy, and we have uh, I've had six uh, children ranging from their 30s to uh, 17. The, the twins are 17. Um, so how do I make my living? Just a little bit of background there. After getting in, uh, an MBA in international business, I enjoyed a, a 30-year career in high-tech working for companies like NCR and AT&T and Cisco Systems. And I left that behind about a year ago and made a transition into uh, writing, of all things, I never thought I would uh, be able to say that, but I've been writing biographies for people who want to have their life story written, as well as fiction, which I think we'll take on uh, later on this discussion, and some uh, a couple of nonfiction works. I've written six books with two more in progress. Um, you asked where I've where I live and where I've lived. Uh, I was born and raised yeah. here in Mesa, Arizona, and I'm and I'm back here now, but in kind of the middle of life, from age 25 to 45, we were. Uh, we were all over the place. We lived in Utah. All of these things we did for a few years. We lived in Utah, Germany, South Carolina, Ohio, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Hong Kong, London, England, and Washington, D.C. And then after all of that moving around, most of that was with business, with a major corporation, and then back home to Arizona. Um, the travels. Yeah, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's it, it's been good and interesting to kind of see the world. You asked about a favorite favorite hobby. Um, my wife says I, I had a midlife crisis not too long ago. I grew up on a dairy, but the dairy moved away from where my home was when I was 10, and maybe I didn't get my fill of it. So about four years ago, we went and bought a couple of uh, calves and raised them and turned one into a milk cow for the last few years. We've been milking a cow every morning and every night, and uh, we just finished up with uh, putting to bed that midlife crisis. It was a blast. It was wonderful to get in touch with my uh, historical roots of having a cow, and, and I'm missing the raw milk right now, I'll tell you that much. But. Oh, wow. I didn't know that that, I guess, phase was over. That was uh, an enjoyable time. I 
loved coming over and seeing those calves. And Josh enjoyed, my son enjoyed uh, doing a couple of rotations on feeding. And I think he even did a little bit of milking, if I remember right. I think he did. I think he took a shot at it. So that was that was a great experience uh, because so many friends and family helped with the milking. It was kind of a community event. We called it the neighborhood cow. <laughs> um, let's see. You asked one more favorite color. Um, yes. I'm going to broaden that and give you a favorite color and a number if that's okay. Oh, okay. Um, my, my favorite color is green. I'm really not sure why, but I think it's because it's comforting and, and natural. My favorite number is easier for me. It's four. My birthday is on 4-4. Four, four. And I realized on my 44th birthday on 444 that that I was pretty well committed to the number four. Wow. There's some meaning behind that number. So (laughs) when you played sports, did you, were you the number four? Did you purposely seek that out by chance or? You know, I think back then they were a little less um, uh, flexible um, on numbers. (laughs) You know, now you watch an NBA guy and he wears 99 or zero or whatever he wants to wear. In those days, I think your choices were 10 to 15, 20 to 25, 30 to 35, et cetera. So, so four was not really an option for me. I, I think I ended up with 13. Well, very good. So thanks for sharing that uh, information about you that we can get to know you a little bit there. The reason why I reached out to you, Corey, is because about six or eight months ago, right closer to eight months ago now, I had a series of experiences, none of which were really uh, noteworthy, but some that turned my mind to what I now call the know and do principle, where when I learn something, I need to put it into action. If not, I'm not doing myself or anybody else any good. But when the Lord impresses on me a little bit of revelation or inspiration, and I go and do that, it helps me and it helps those around me. And as I have developed this idea and continued to see it in my life over and over again, the idea of talking to people and getting to know their stories of when no became due in their own lives, kind of a conversion type story. I made a list of several people who I thought, man, I would love to talk to this person. And Corey, you were one of the first people on that list that I wanted to talk to and get this story out with, give you the opportunity to get that story and share some projects in your life that we've already alluded to in which you may be using the know and do principle in doing that. These conversions or these instances, they can be referred to in scriptural text. A lot of times you'll hear people talk about their Paul on the road to uh, Damascus experiences or Alma the Younger experiences, but they can also be more subtle, maybe kind of like Peter's conversion, um, you know, the feed my sheep, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren, comes to fruition at that point, and other less dramatic conversion stories. So what I'd love to do is just kind of talk to you about that. Corey, was there a time in your life when you went, you know what, I really believe in this and then tell us a little bit more about that time and then we'll talk about when it came to I'm putting it into action so if you have something to share there that would be great 
I would like to, Justin. Thank you. And and back to your earlier comments, I'm I'm humbled by what you said. I'm very thankful, grateful to have you as a as a friend, and uh, humbled that you would want to hear more of the story. Thank you. You're welcome. So I, gave, I gave that a little thought, and I think that there's there there are two events that I'd like to mention and link, and I think they apply very well to the know and do concept, which I think is a, a fantastic uh, approach you're taking. And I wish you all the very best with with this project. I, I've been enjoying listening to uh, some of the uh, programs that you've put out, and, and keep going. Well, thank you. Yeah, you bet. So the first of to is I was raised um, LDS. I was raised a Mormon here in uh, in Arizona, and along with that, as the years go by, comes the expectation of serving a, a mission. Certainly for the young man, it's an expectation. And I I I always wanted to go, but it still takes the courage uh, to commit to doing that. For me, it boiled down to finding enough conviction that what I had been taught as a little boy was true and worthwhile and having a deep enough conviction that I would go out and share it and defend it. And as I was 17 and 18, I did become convinced that that was worthwhile. It was a key moment for me. I was called to serve a two-year mission when I was 19 in northern Germany to learn the language, of course, and to and to teach those people and serve those people. I'll tell you, that decision to to do once I knew was one of the few most important decisions I've ever made in my life. Those two years were worth at least 10 years of, of physical, social, intellectual, and, and most importantly, spiritual progress. There isn't there isn't a day where I don't feel the positive effects of my two years serving the Lord in Germany. So let me jump forward and, and mention another uh, event and, and kind of hook the two together. The second event is about 25 years in the future from my first mission. Coincidentally, it was when our second son was serving his own two-year LDS mission down in Argentina. And it's a long story, but but sadly he passed away um, in a train accident. It was um, sudden and uh, devastating in many ways. We we have some illness in our family, and and uh, our other boys have an illness. This was our only healthy son, and he was the only one who was really expected to live long enough to live kind of a quote normal life and have children and provide his grandchildren, etc. It really was kind of a tremendous, indescribable shock. And I believe that my wife Amy and I were confronted with a huge decision at that time. And it's a no and, and do decision. And would we submit humbly to the will of a loving Father in heaven and move forward with faith and thereby putting into practice real practice, all the things that we learned and professed to believe throughout our lives? Or would we become bitter and lose faith and uh, and let it affect us negatively? And as I look back, I, I'm, I'm pleased to say that we were able to do what we knew um, in that case. And that was those first few hours after finding out that, that our son had passed, Benjamin, um, it was a deep comfort to me to know that, that the things I believed 
I truly believed, I deeply believed, and that it didn't cause any course correction, it didn't cause any rocking of the foundations of my soul, so to speak. Um, so I, th- I think those are two experiences. You know, the first real opportunity was my mission to, to prove that I had a testimony of Christ and and his role of, as Savior and Redeemer. And then the, the second um, opportunity was when Ben passed to say, you know, can I really walk the walk after having talked the talk? And, and at least to this point in our lives, we feel confident that, that that's where we are. Thank you for sharing those um, experiences. And I know that knowing you, I know a lot of the additional information. In fact, Corey, would you feel comfortable sharing a little bit more about your family, about uh, your other boys? Yes. Uh, we have uh, six children, uh, boy, boy, girl, girl, boy, boy. And of our four boys, uh, one of them, Ben, was our healthy son, and he, as we discussed, passed away in, in Argentina during his uh, mission. Our three other boys um, are affected by something called muscular dystrophy. It's a disease that weakens and kills muscle tissue over time and shortens life, of course. Um, our oldest son, Ethan, passed away when he was 25, and our, our younger sons are now 17 and dealing with the effects of that disease. They're they're unable to they're they're socially, mentally, spiritually completely well, um, but their muscles are not well, and they're in wheelchairs and are dependent on us and others for uh, everything physically. So that's uh, that's been a challenge for us that we've that we've had to deal with and and have hopefully approached it with faith and a positive attitude. I believe we have. And I have experienced that. I got to know you about. Five, yeah, about five years ago, I believe, is when I really started uh, getting to know your family as we moved into the same neighborhood as you at that point. And uh, your boys, Kate and Colby, the youngest uh, twins, have had a major impact in my life and in my family's life. As, um, they are Josh's best friends in, in mortality, and uh, I really appreciate the example that you and your family are to me and the way that you carry yourselves. I'm grateful to know you and to know your family. Uh, you're, you're so kind, but uh, I will tell you the the boys love, as you know, the, my boys love Josh and so do we, uh, we would, uh, we would adopt him if he didn't already have wonderful, fantastic parents. <laughs> Some days I may send him your way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good. So thanks for sharing that. Is there any other uh, instances or experiences that you have had in which that no uh, became due? I mean, you shared very powerful ones. I just want to make sure we get everything that you feel like would be useful to listeners. You know, I I will say just a general comment. I don't think it's a I, I don't recall the timing on it, but somewhere in my, uh, it was actually while we were living in Hong Kong, in China, that I, I don't remember the set of experiences, but it, it hit me really strong, at kind of a version of the know and do concept. And that is that we are exposed to things in life that teach us, that 
edify us, inspire us, they make us better in some way. And we have a deep commitment, and I only felt it deeply then for the first time, but it's been a a recurring theme for me in my life since. We have a responsibility to internalize that learning, teaching, inspiration, to not only live it, but to pass it on. I think one of the church programs that we're involved with now has, it always involves three steps, learn, act, share, right? Same kind of concept mm-hmm. where we have the responsibility once we've been taught to not only act upon it, but to share it wherever we have it. That's, that's never very far from my thought. And sometimes mm-hmm. when I experience something that's powerful or meaningful, I, I remind myself, all right, Corey, that's been put into your library now and uh, you owe it to yourself to the person who inspired you or taught you and to mankind i know that sounds a little hokey but you owe it to not only act on it but to share it as well and i think that's exactly this uh, concept here i mean it's based off of christ's invitation to peter when thou art converted strengthen thy brethren do you, are there any favorite verses of Scripture, passages of Scripture that have impacted your life and motivated you to to put into action the things that you believe? Yes. There's two that, that came to mind. One, and I forgot to look up the reference, but it's found in the New Testament, among other places. The first one says, from from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. That responsibility, it ties into what I said just a few minutes ago, but responsibility to be true to the blessings and beliefs that I've received rests heavily on me that, that I feel like, you know, you could go down a list. I'm born in America where there's certain freedoms, which is a blessing. I'm born in a time and an age when healthcare and other things i'm born uh, at a time when the uh, when the gospel is explained and understood as clearly as it ever has been if you lined up a series of things in all the history of the world it would be hard to find a people uh, more blessed uh, than than i am and than we are and and i think that comes with a responsibility so that's one the second one is a really obscure reference. And again, I believe it was on my mission when I was in Germany as I read this. It's just impressed very deeply on my soul. It's in 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And in it, Paul, of course, is writing to the people in Thessalonica and he's introducing the letter. He takes a while to say hi. And in it, he reminds them why he had success amongst the people in Thessalonica. And he says, quote, "Um, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. As I said, when I read that, it just really sunk powerfully that the giving of any good gift, uh, whether it's the gospel of Christ or, or any other good thing, will not be conveyed 
properly, effectively, or fully unless it is done with love, with charity. If we want to positively affect people's lives in any way, they have to know that we love and care for them before we can be effective. The old saying of, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, I believe that. Oh, I Yeah, that uh, second reference is one that I don't know that I've ever noticed it. It hasn't been anything noticeable as I've read and studied and, and learned. So I really appreciate you expounding on that for me. It's really cool to get additional people's points of view and favorites and why. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this project that you're working on, this series, Seeker series of books that I'm very grateful to have been able to read in the early stages, and and I have to admit they are uh, gripping. I enjoyed them. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing, and uh, and we'll discuss that a little bit. Great, and, and thanks for that opportunity, and thanks for the kind comments about the books. In my past, I mean, I mentioned this 30-year business career, but there's always been kind of a creative side on the side for me. We didn't get into it, and we don't need to today, but I have had the blessing of creating two stage musicals, including uh, writing the music in in many cases and uh, the script and the stage directions, etc., that's been a great opportunity. I also have written poetry probably from my teenage years, and the associated definition of poetry is lyrics. But those were always outlets for me and meaningful to me. I always doubted my ability and patience to write anything longer than a poem or a lyric, to write long pieces of prose. And it really hit me a few years ago that I needed to tackle that question and decide whether I could write prose or not. And I jumped in, and I started writing, and candidly, I had a real sweet experience with it. At the end of the day, if if the series is gripping, I love the word you used, then that's a, a great blessing. The result of that, deciding whether I could write prose or not, is a four-book series in a genre that many people call dystopian, which means the future gone wrong in some way. It's called The Seeger Chronicles. There's four books. The first one is is called Traditions of Our Fathers, and and then it moves on from there. Of course, for me, it wasn't just about the idea of writing enough words that satisfied it being a book, but but rather making it good and readable and telling a message that people want to hear or, or I think need to hear. And in this case, perhaps the key lesson from the books is that the basic liberties we enjoy, uh, the right to speak our minds and the right to worship as we please as two examples, that they are worth fighting for and even worth sacrificing for. And the process of fighting and striving against forces that try to take liberty away from us brings forth, evokes powerful and even redemptive experiences that inspire and motivate good people. That's kind of a nutshell of what the books are and and my attempt at kind of the elevator pitch on what the lessons are in the, in the series. So was that lesson, was that something you had in mind as you started with it? Did you have the framework, hey, this is the lesson I want to convey, or did it come out naturally as you were going along writing? 
That's a great question, and I'm sure everyone who's written will will answer that slightly differently. But I'll tell you, in my experience, I did begin with somewhat of an end in mind. And I thought I could do it all in one book, and it turns out that it needed to marinate. That's why it's four books. But I did start off with basically good versus evil, light versus dark, and the striving to overcome that. But I will say that the process, the twists in the plot and the creation of characters and the development of those, a lot of that happened um, in the writing process as I wrote instead of – I was. I actually always kind of imagine that if you wrote a book, you would write a very healthy, you know, to use an analogy of, of a body, you would put the bones in place and then and put the muscle and, and other things on top of it. And I found that I really didn't have much of the skeleton in place when I started, and then it just kind of developed as I went. That's awesome. The reason I asked that question is because that message that you shared as to what it stands up for is exactly what I got out of it. In fact, I remember, and I just pulled it up just to just to confirm to myself, I remember the review, I guess, thing that I wrote for you. Yeah. And the very first sentence I wrote is, throughout history, the question, is it better to have liberty or security, has been posed by many people in many situations. And I just developed it from there, the, the review. And that's what I got out of your book. It's worth sacrifice. It's worth fighting for those liberties. And for any of the listeners of this podcast, this book does a fantastic job of putting into a believable format a society that has decided that security was more important than liberty and a handful of people making the tide go in a different direction. And it's fantastic. I so appreciate that. And to your point about uh, believability, I worked really hard on that. Um, the, the essence of the plot is that in around 2030, 2030, the world kind of falls apart because uh, there's nuclear war. And it doesn't annihilate the species, but it makes a huge dent and kills directly and indirectly, you know. 20, 30% of the planet and another 20, 30 or 40, 50% are deeply impacted. And how do you recover from that? What moves forward? And the the storyline is that basically North America is, is at some point governed by someone who got there by misbehaving and is a bad guy. Long story short, he's a bad guy and controls the, the population um, through various means and the four books really tell the story of a very small group of people led by two teenagers who slowly begin to fight back, and they do so at huge cost and are finally able to make a difference. Long story short, I, I really tried to work on the believability aspect, and most people that have reviewed it for me, actually all people that have reviewed it have said, I can buy this. Absolutely. So I've read... Books with similar ideas, 1984, for example, where it's basically a mind control type thing, Big Brother's watching, so on and so forth. So as I was reading along in, in the Seeger Chronicles, I, was, I, I had the hope that the end would be happy. It, it's definitely worth the read. That's the, I appreciate that. I, I've been pleased by the responses from friends and family. And you know, my, my goal when I have somebody read it is that we'll will be terribly candid with me if that's what's required, you know, and provide feedback. I've had a lot of sweet 
family and friends that have been uh, true to that and have told me all the good stuff and have told me things that need to improve and that's enabled me to make a whole lot of edits and I think we have a pretty good streamlined series that's readable and powerful. Very good. And and like I said, when when you shared those with me to read through, I was reading one of them a day and that was just in my spare time. I was just so, I got to get through this. This is awesome. So um, very, very good. You alluded to a couple of uh, screenplays that you've done. Do you want to share a little bit about each of those? I'd be happy to. So I've been lucky and and blessed to have created two stage musicals. One has been on stage and uh, multiple times. The other one I've not been able to stage yet. Let me explain a little bit about the two. One of them is called 1856 The Musical. And with my LDS heritage, really in my late 30s, I kind of really got in touch with the fact that I was a recipient of a great legacy and a great heritage on the on the Mormon side of things. In the early days of America, about 300,000 people went from the eastern United States to the territories and states in the West between the years basically 1840 and 1869. And the reason 1869 matters is that's when a transcontinental railroad was hooked up finally and everything got Mm -hmm. much, much easier. So in those years, people walked or brought Conestoga wagons and the like. and uh, one of the chapters in American history, in Mormon history, in American history, that's really compelling is for a few years, the Mormon church used hand carts, small carts where you put your belongings. Um, I think they were limited to less than 20 pounds a person, and they put it into these carts, and they literally carried, they drug the carts. The, it was uh, harder than oxen, but uh, less expensive and actually faster oxen require care and feeding and in 1856 there were five of these companies and the first three came through really well and the last two companies left late and they got caught in winter storms autumn storms on the high plains of wyoming and it turned into a very dramatic horrible situation where dozens and dozens a couple two hundred people out of a thousand in the last two companies actually perished and if not for the rescue efforts of people that came back from Salt Lake City, when they learned about it, all the rest of them would have died. It was They were on the verge. They were losing 10 or 15 people a day. And that story, the handcart story um, from 1856, has really become an embedded part of church history. And it really hit me strong. And I had relatives that were involved. And I found myself writing poetry, which ended up being lyrics. And then writing songs and script and and over a number of years, I took that forward and I found uh, wonderful people to help me. Now I don't hear uh, when I write music, I don't hear oboes and and uh, violins. <laughs> I just you know I have melodies, and so people that with more musical knowledge than I do, uh, Mildred West Wiseman Packard and Randy Karchner, and Randy and I've collaborated in on other projects, which I'll mention in a moment, but wonderful people that helped make it robust, world-class music, candidly. And we put that on stage. I think we're up to between thirty and 40,000 people have seen it in four states, and uh, it's been a real blessing. And it's really well done, if I may say so myself, but it's also hard to watch because while it ends 
in some ways happy and in some ways sad. It's a very hard thing to watch. It's true. It's history. I had someone uh, tell me one time when it was on in Salt Lake City, a woman who told me, this is the best musical I've ever seen, but I could never watch it again because it's gut-wrenching and hard. But the point is it's it's history and it's an opportunity to bear a testimony, uh, again, of things that are held deeply and are believed to be true. And uh, So that's 1856, and I hope to put yeah. it on stage again sometime soon. And, you know, as we um, look at that experience, not just the musical itself, but the history behind it, isn't that really the very essence of know and do? These people did and put their lives, I mean, literally their lives out there for what they believed and knew. Absolutely. You know, most of the, the travelers were, were from England, in fact, and they had left, some of them had left uncomfortable lives, and many of them had left comfortable lives. And, you know, these are people not accustomed to sailing across an ocean, certainly people not accustomed to creating their own meals over a, a, a fire on the plains and walking for 1,300 miles, and basically 12 to 15 miles a day. And they did exactly what you said. They became converted to a cause and to a testimony. And they uh, they were willing to sacrifice anything and everything. Uh, great example of no one do. Yeah, go ahead and talk about the next one now. I suppose it was uh, therapy that led me to, you know, my the second musical. Um, with the, the health care issues and the accident of our son that we talked about, those are pretty heavy things and weigh on your soul. So with those heavy things and with my natural inclination to find an outlet in poetry, I find myself writing um, poems. And it really connected and, and eventually became a story, a plot line, characters. And the second musical is called Crosses, the musical of hope. And... Um, it's autobiographical. The names are changed. It's really just a mom and a dad and two boys. And one of the boys ends up passing away because of disease, and one ends up passing away because of an accident. At the same time, while that sounds horrible, it tries to convey the things I talked about earlier, which are hope, belief, faith, attitude, and um, in this case, in, in 1856, the musical, I actually created the tunes, the melodies, and the songs, and they were then made better, much, much better by the two names, uh, the people I talked to earlier, Mildred and Randy. In this case, I wrote the lyrics, and Randy completed the music. He created the music completely. So in this case, I, I'm responsible for the, the lyrics and the script, and he's responsible for the music. When we recorded the soundtrack, we haven't put it on stage yet, but we recorded the soundtrack, and uh, we used a couple of the best voices in America. Um, both uh, the main man and the main woman are stars on Broadway, candidly, and just really knocked it out of the park. I mean, I think the soundtrack is particularly powerful, and I'm, I'm waiting for the right time. I've always say to stage something, you need a combination of music, time, and passion passion mm -hmm. slash inspiration, and I'm waiting for those three things to combine to stage each of those musicals. So you mentioned that the Crosses, a musical of hope, 
is put on CD or available, I'm, I'm assuming available on iTunes. Um, is there a place where people can go to to look for that and maybe purchase it? Yeah, absolutely. Both uh, 1856 The Musical and Crosses are available on just about every music service uh, you could find, iTunes, uh, Spotify, and on and on and on. You, you, and you can uh, listen to them as well on YouTube. There, there's no videos attached to them, but you could listen to them even on YouTube. But if you'd like to buy um, tracks or the entire album, any music service you can find them on. And, and, and again, it's 1856, The Musical, and Crosses, A Musical of Hope. Awesome. Oh, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. I I listen to Crosses fairly regularly as I commute hmm. places because there are a couple of tracks in there that really speak to me and I really enjoy them. In 1856, the musical, I saw the play a long time ago, but I have not listened to it uh, again since then. They, um, they feel very different. You know, 1856 feels like traditional church kind of music more more than than anything else and crosses is is very much pop music yeah or stage you know it's it feels broadway it's stage music it is yeah it does it feels very broadway and the lyrics are very very powerful i i enjoy that so anything else that you want to share about any of these projects moving forward do you have the information for when the seeger chronicles come out so that we can look for that at that point Absolutely. Thanks for asking. I almost forgot that. The, the Seeger Chronicles uh, book one, we will release that in the, in the middle of November, right around the 15th. And then books two, three, and four will be released two to four weeks, you know, in, in a line. So probably uh, mid, mid-November and then early December, early January, early February. So all, all four books will be out in the market uh, in the next few months. And they'll be able to be purchased at Amazon or any other place you would purchase books? Or where, where do you think that will happen? Yes, they will. We're going to self-publish, but once you do that and get it out into the, you know, Amazon, of course, is the king of that delivery method. So they'll be available on Amazon or through me personally or also a number of other anywhere you can buy books online. It'll eventually trickle down and be available on all of those as well. Very good. Well, Corey, is there anything else that you'd like to to share with us in in closing before we end this conversation? I don't think so. It feels like I've shared uh, shared a lot, and, and I'm grateful for that opportunity. No, and I'm grateful for the opportunity and and the the willingness that you have to sit down and talk with me about this. You are uh, one of the people that I admire most, and I really so am blessed to have had the opportunity to live in the same neighborhood as you, to get to know you, to serve with your family. And uh, it has made a huge impact in my life. Thank you, Justin. You know, I love you. Love you too, Corey. So there you have it. A great man with some amazing projects that he has worked on and continues to work on. I'm very grateful once again to have this opportunity to have conversed with Corey and to have and to know him as a friend. I would highly encourage you to take some time and go and look up his musical 
soundtracks from Crosses, A Musical of Hope, and from 1856, The Musical. They can both be found with a simple Google search or on all of the music um, media, iTunes, and wherever else you get your, your music. I mentioned that a couple of the tracks from his Crosses, A Musical of Hope, have special meaning in my life. So I am going to send out this interview with one of those soundtracks called Standing Still. In the meantime, please remember that, as always, Christ is the key. Searching for glimmers of light 